Hello and welcome to the Anxiety to Confidence podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Booth, and I've been a clinical hypnotherapist since 2011. I specialise in helping people overcome anxiety and build confidence instead. This weekly podcast will cover a wide range of mental health issues related to anxiety, along with some helpful tips and suggestions that you can try at home. If you have any questions that you'd like answered in a future episode, then please head to www.anxietytoconfidence.com forward slash podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, welcome to this week's episode. And this week for my 2021 guest series, I am joined by Mary, who has very kindly interviewed over Zoom all the way from Melbourne in Australia. Now, Mary is a trainer in mental health first aid. And in this episode, she talks a lot about her personal journey as to how she's ended up in this line of work. I feel like I need to warn you for this episode. There are a few things that we mentioned that might be upsetting to some people. So during this episode, we do talk about things like suicide, child sexual abuse and domestic abuse. Not in any great detail, but just to illustrate the journey that Mary has been on. So if you're feeling particularly vulnerable and you think that these topics might upset you, then it could be worth giving this episode a miss. However, I would say that this is a really positive episode. And because of Mary's experience and what she trains people in, there's some really, really good advice towards the end of the episode of how you can talk to friends and family members that are struggling with mental health. So I really hope that you find this episode as interesting as I did when we recorded it. And I really hope that you get something useful from it as well. Well, firstly, I'd like to thank you a huge amount for taking the time to talk to me. You're joining us from Melbourne, is that correct? Absolutely. It's, it's my absolute joy to, to be of assistance. So thank you for the opportunity, really. I wonder if you'd be so kind as to introduce yourself. Okay, my name's Mary Van Lambert and uh, I'm living here in Williamstown in, in Melbourne. So I'm near the water. So I've got seaside and the cityscape. So I'm in a very fortunate space to live. And um, I have started a company of my own called The Gap Group. And uh, The Gap Group predominantly came from my work in education. So I've been um, an assistant principal in a school for over 20 odd years. And during that time, it became incredibly evident that there were huge gaps that were occurring systematically. And uh, I came to a point where um, I couldn't do my job anymore. I had to step away from education. And um, over the past 12 months, I've stepped into the role as a mental health first aid instructor. So I actually run a range of um, events, I suppose, and we do them both online and we do them face-to-face around training for people to understand what are mental illnesses, what are the different mental illnesses in our communities, and also how to start a conversation with somebody Uh, have a candid conversation about suicide or non-suicidal self-harm behaviours or if um, somebody just needs to have that additional conversation to tap them them into services and what services are available to them and if they don't want to be tapped into service what else is available to them what other resources are available so that's the work that I do now 
And the, the varying courses that I do are around youth training. So that goes from ages from, you know, early childhood in primary years right through to the end of secondary. We also do tertiary, which is that, in that, that um, university sector. We do workplace and community. And we're now drilling down for specific services like legal profession and financial profession because they're starting to see the higher number of suicide rates. So we're trying to do work to support them. So that, that's pretty much what I do now. But it stems from the fact that I, I got to a point in my working career that the environment that I worked in was in a low socioeconomic regional Victoria, uh, Victorian school. And so we had really high domestic violence and sexual abuse cases. And uh, in my school community that I'd been in, um, I'd been there for a considerable amount of time with one sort of crisis after the other. So we'd had a loss of a child, we'd had, you know, bushfire affected area, and we had a recent event of somebody who had experienced a stabbing across the road from the school. We had to go into lockdown and the perpetrator, who was known by everybody in the community, subsequently killed himself. So that was sort of the tipping point for me. And I needed to step away from that space for a while. So in that stepping away, I did a lot of um, soul searching and I had a um, you know, visit with a psychologist every week for, and I still do. So that journey's now gone on for over three and a half years. So, and I have, you know, a psychiatrist that I also tap into and my GP. But over that three years, it was really unpacking where was a lot of my behaviour from? Why do I do what I do? Um, I was about 55 kilos heavier than I am now. So I understood my relationship with food, which is that maladaptive behaviour that comes into play when you've got a mental illness. And um, yeah, so it, it, across that journey, I, I sort of understood where some things came from, why I do what I do. And while I unpacked all of that from a psychological point of view, and that was great, I didn't feel like I was getting any better just from all the talk. So I got to a stage with my psychologist and I was, I felt like even though I'd done all of this work and tried to unpack where I got to where I got to, I had said to them, I didn't feel like I was getting any better. I didn't feel any stronger and I didn't feel like I had really adapted uh, to any new sort of behaviours, really. I sort of understood why things were happening. And that's when I really um, started looking for somebody in that coaching space and mentoring space that was more about calling to action. So it was great to do the medicating. That had its purpose. The talking had its purpose. But for me, it wasn't enough. And so I needed to have somebody that was going to call me to action. And so that was, I think, the missing link for me. So, and I don't think I would have started a business and gone and done additional training or anything like that unless I had somebody in my corner that was pulling me to um, do something a bit different to to just sitting and mulling over week after week 
you know, where my mental health was, which wasn't in a good space. So I'm, I'm very pleased that I had somebody that was, you know, able to do that with me. However, that doesn't mean that I don't still have issues around my mental health. I still have days where it's really difficult to get out of bed and face the world, uh, but the bucket isn't as deep as what it was three years ago because it was so low that um, getting up and facing the day wasn't even possible. I didn't leave my house. Um, I didn't socialise with anybody. I was very insular and uh, was willing for, for me not to wake up each day. So it was pretty dark three years ago. That's quite a journey. It is. It is. But through that journey, you discover a lot. So, you know, I... I then sort of realised, um, as I said, where some of those behaviours had come from. The work things, there was no sort of gap in between. So it was sort of uh, everything thrown into a very small amount of time. So I'd become exhausted. So it put me into a spot where I was forced to face a number of things. And, and part of that was that um, I had, I suppose, numbed down or pushed to the side, whatever you know, analogy we want to use, but that I was sexually assaulted at the age of eight and that was by somebody within a religious order and that went on for a number of years. But it was only in probably the last 18 months that I even understood where my food journey came from and when I look back, it goes back that far. So I stopped eating at that age and would give my food away to people at school or, you know, I'd go through that process. And then when my parents became aware of me not eating, I got into trouble. So then you had to sort of shift your behaviour. So I shifted that behaviour from not eating to eating and purging. And I did that for quite a number of years. And then I found myself pregnant and felt that I needed to do the right thing, obviously for myself and for the baby. But I found myself in a very highly abusive relationship. And um, so then what I did was eat. I ate a lot, was filling the emotional hole. And I think also part of that was putting the weight on to make myself um, least uh, attractive, I suppose. And um, so that sort of happened and I, I put on quite an extensive amount of weight. So I got up to about, about 135 kilo. I'm not sure what that is in stone your end. And um, over the last two and a half years, I've dropped about 55 kilos in weight. But I really think that uh, part of that weight journey uh, and keeping the weight off is understanding where it came from initially. So, because I've done diets, I've lost weight and then put weight back on and lost and put back on. So um, I think the difference this time around, though, is really understanding what my relationship is with food and what my relationship is with exercise and my identity as a female, etc. And uh, what attraction is and, you know, um, being okay with the, the way that I look and um, not being so fearful of male attraction because obviously previously that male attraction has resulted in not particularly good experiences so it, it's sort of separating all of those bits and pieces if that makes sense 
Yeah, of course, absolutely. I think uh, it's a very common thing for a lot of people to not try and confront things like that until they're put in a position where they sort of have no choice. Certainly as a therapist, I see that quite a lot. It's a challenging thing to decide that you actually need to go and deal with some of this. It is. I think, you know, things come up in and out of your space over your lifespan and, you know, it can hit you to the ground, but you ignore it. And then you, um, I come from a generation of the stiff upper lip, you know, just get up and keep going. And I suppose one of my, which I hadn't really identified it until recently, is that it was a non-suicidal self-harm behaviour was overwork. So I was an overworker. I invested a lot of my time and energy into that perfectionism and reaching the heights and getting the, you know, high distinctions when I was at university and um, making sure that, you know, that you're the elite of the, the workspace and being the best of the best. So that became the focus. And in the middle of all of that, <laughs> underneath, uh, all of those things that are supposed to keep you healthy was completely ignored to the point where, you know, it's it's like white ants eating away at the wood structure and then eventually there's nothing left to hold the house up and it crumbles and you've got to go back to baseline and redo your foundation all over again so that you can rebuild that, that's pretty much where, where I've been and where, where I am now. It's nice to hear you talk about the fact that you feel like medication had its place and you feel like talking therapy had its place and then you had the kind of self-awareness to then go find something that at a later stage helped you even more. There's a mm. lot of people, I think, who really struggle to know what kind of help they need. For you personally, what made you decide to get those different types of help at different times? Well, initially, I didn't really have a choice at all because I, I suppose I'd gone into the bunker when I, I hit the ground and I was losing my career because, you know, I couldn't function at work. Going into work was, was too traumatic and um, there was a lot of shame attached to the fact that when you're, in a, a, when you're in your mind working towards trying to be the best of the best and obviously provide a really safe environment for children to be in a schooling space, etc. And then somebody's questioning your capacity. That's a pretty hard thing to face. So sitting in that bunker was either you take your life because you felt like there really wasn't much else to, to live for, or you've got to try to rebuild. And so there really wasn't a lot of choice. There was, I had to start engaging. But in saying that, if I can pause there for a second, you know, the, the role that I was in and the portfolio that I had, which was around all of those children that were considered at risk. So all of those kids that had, you know, disabilities or domestic violence or sexual assault, et cetera. My training was that I always tapped in with a psychologist. So I had a very healthy relationship with doing debriefing. So that part of the job wasn't my trauma. It was the trauma of keeping more globally the environment safe. So I, I felt like I had a reasonably good handle on doing my job and being able to disconnect from that traumatic um, information. So, you know, I, I, I had an understanding around what was a good psychologist and what wasn't for me. 
So when it came to the point of me needing to go for myself, I, I sort of had an idea in my mind already around what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. So I had to find that right person. So that probably took about four or five goes, to be perfectly honest. And so that takes a certain level of patience and, a, a you know, commitment. There's got to be a commitment in yourself to say, okay, this one didn't work. That doesn't mean that the the process doesn't work. So you've got to go back and find the next person and not be disheartened by that because it's so easy to become disheartened and and also buy into the headspace of C, it doesn't work. So you can find all of the evidence that you want to find to prove to yourself and to others that, that mental health is not fixable and that there's no one out there for you, etc. You've just got to be willing to go back again and again until you find the right person, the right fit for you. And then once you do, then your faith can be restored. But, but you've got to be prepared Um and I think sometimes you're not prepared for that because people just sort of have this illusion that you're going to get into service really quickly and that's not the case. Sometimes there's an extensive wait period and now because of COVID, that wait period ex has extended out even further. So when you're in crisis and you're thinking suicidal thinking, being told that it can take nine months to see a practitioner can be just sort of the, the the straw that breaks the camel's back. So um, I think being aware beforehand that it could take that long is good because you can be mentally prepared for the fact that there's a delay. And I think if you're prepared mentally for the fact that you may not find the right practitioner in the very first appointment, that that's okay, that you just go and try another one. And if that's not the right one, that that's okay. Try, try a third. So being mentally prepared for that, I think, is, is really important for people because if there's an idea that you're just going to tap into the right service straight away and that it's going to work straight away can be enough, potentially as a tipping point for somebody to spiral even further in, into, you know, into the um, black hole, for the want of a better word. So uh, being aware of that, I think, is really critical. And then once you're aware of that, then at least you know what the playing field could look like and that you're more prepared for the fact that if this doesn't work, well, then I move to another one and that's okay. So knowing the playing field, I think, is really critical for people, especially in that mental illness sector, because I think there's a lot of mis-messages that are out there. I'm not sure what it's like in the UK, but here in Australia, we have Lifeline that we're often told to tap into and they're great organisations, they really are, but it's not like you can call them and get somebody on the other end of the phone straight, the, straight away. There's a delay generally. And so if you've got this idea that you're going to get somebody at the other end of the line and you don't, you know, that, that can be pretty crushing really at the end of the day and I've if I've experienced it I've rung them because I've been in that much of a crisis point and lucky I have a, a, a nice dark humor <laughs> that could live with the voice recording of your call is important to us <laughs> just leave your name and number <laughs> you know so I found that moment you know humorous but on the other side of the coin it was devastating at the same time
I know the healthcare systems are different. In the UK, our NHS is absolutely incredible, um, but it is the same thing. There is a bit of a wait, particularly for mental health services, and you mm. won't necessarily be able to be seen by somebody straight away. And sometimes it can be challenging to find the right help because the NHS has many different ways in which it can help people with mental illness and trying mm. to find the right help can be really, really challenging. In the UK, we have a few charities that can help out. So we have the Samaritans, um, mm -hmm. who you can call at any time. Um, actually, I'll pop the number for that in the description to the podcast in case anyone's listening and, and feels like that would be beneficial. Um, and they do answer the phone, um, but they're just volunteers. They're people who will talk to you. They're not necessarily mental health professionals. Um, so yeah. it's more of a, a buddy service, I guess, really. But, but yeah, it is, it is a big challenge. And I know from my own experiences as well, that process of trying to find help is incredibly slow and painful, um, but well worth sticking with and trying to continue. I mean, in the UK, there's a, a wide range of private mental health facilities out there, um, yeah. which is always an option if you can afford to, and sometimes is worth doing if you can afford to. I think the other part that I struggled with, and I know lots of people do for, for lots of different reasons, but it was the potential stigma that is attached to taking medication. And um, I'm not a real big medication person anyway. So to have that constantly brought up initially was really challenging because I was like, I don't feel comfortable with it. I don't want to go down that pathway, etc. And um, when I did start down the, the, you know, the experimenting with taking medication, that also was a challenge because obviously trying to find the sweet spot around what was the right medication to take and obviously the reactions that we can have can vary quite considerably and that um, suicidal ideation can increase depending on what medication that you're taking and I don't think there's enough conversation with clients around what could you do if that increases for you, what sort of supports can you put around yourself? Because one of the medications I had, it really increased my fight response. And so, you know, I'd go to bed and I would zap out and sleep for a little while, but then I'd get up at two or three in the morning and then I'd run, I'd run for about 10 or 11 K. And cause at that sort of, um, response mechanism was so strong in me that that was the only thing I could do was escape was to go out and do a run which in some ways was a good thing but on on the other side of the the coin the fear element in your head was really really extreme so that wasn't a pleasant experience and that was a good month of dealing with that and then having to come off that medication to start a new medication so it requires a, a certain amount of patience and um, support from the right people a and then there comes the the realization of how it can change who you are as a person because it can numb your emotions and I, I still don't feel I have a full spectrum of emotions yet so I can um, intellectually identify when something is funny or something is sad or whatever but I still don't have any real connection to that internal emotional response so I don't have access to tears I don't have access to any of that so that becomes tricky if you're a creative thinker because it can numb down all of those amazing 
you know, rainbow spectrum of personality out, out of the equation. So the other part of that, which I often talk about in my mental health first aid courses, is trying to expand that understanding for people around when family and friends get frustrated with somebody with mental illness who stop taking their medication because it's not necessarily that you want to buck the system it's sometimes you just want to feel like who you actually are naturally and and the only way to do that sometimes is to stop the medication yeah I often have people tell me that they'd rather feel the kind of emotional pain than not feel anything at all I think there'll be a lot of people that could identify with that yeah yeah I find that probably one of the hardest parts of the, the whole journey because I love a good laugh. I love humour. I think it's great. And, um, you know, having a good cry is such a cleansing thing to do. And so, for example, about a week and a half ago, one of my previous students, you know, he ended his life because he was in so much pain. And he's only 17. And... Normally, that would be something I would I would really be sad and, and cry deeply about, but but I haven't been able to access that emotion. I'm sad. I know intellectually that I'm sad, but from an emotional point of view, I haven't been able to tap into that yet. So, um, so that was that. You know, it, there there are things that come up every day because that's life, you know, and you know that that's the full spectrum of life. But from an emotional point of view, you're not tapping into that same spectrum of colour. So where would you say you are now? I mean, you've you've shared, very kindly shared quite a lot of information about what happened to you. Mm-hmm. How do you now manage that? It's, it's a mix of many things because part of my um, journey back to, to some form of wellness was also around identifying did I need to stay where I was geographically living? And I found, because I, I originally was living in rural Victoria and um, I come from a very big Catholic family and, you know, then I was a teacher. I owned a business in, in the Gippsland region and so I knew a lot of people. So part of me not leaving the house was because I didn't want to run into anybody that I knew. But the part that was problematic about that was that obviously I wasn't living any life I wasn't going to the supermarket I wasn't going out I wasn't socializing etc and the reality is you can't live your life inside four walls either so I just had that I don't know where it actually came from but it was that moment of I can't do this anymore I'd, I'd really hit that rock bottom and within a week I'd come to Melbourne I'd looked for a place found somewhere and I moved within one week it was that fast and so I moved to a coastal region here in in Melbourne and it was the best thing that I did because it gave me the anonymity that I needed for me to be able to go back outside and start socializing again and exercising and developing a new structure for myself it was sort of like a rebirth in a way and you know there are there are benefits and disadvantages because I'm now further away from where my daughter and my grandchildren live. So there's a sadness to that, but there's also 
um, an importance for me to show my own daughter that it doesn't matter how old you are, that you can always reinvent yourself. I think that's really important. And so um, while there are losses in that, I think there is, there's more gains in what I've done. And um, so I'm, I'm very aware that I can only do so many hours of work in a, in a week and I can't go beyond that at this point of time because energetically I don't have the, the resources yet to be able to go past that and I may never go be able to work beyond the hours that I currently work and I've gone through that grief period because as I said before I was addicted to work and readjusting that and not working like everybody else works um, I'm okay with that now, you know, I'm okay with the fact that I'm not trying to keep up with everybody else. I do what I can and I do what I do well, but I'm okay with the fact that I need time out to re-energize and to exercise and to be mindful of what I eat. I do um, self-care Saturday or self-care Sunday. So I always go and have a massage or do something for myself on either of those two days and there's Wellbeing Wednesday or, you know, so I, I'm very, um, I'm regimented, but not, if you know what I mean. I make sure that there's always something that I'm doing, but I don't punish myself if I don't achieve it that week. It's like, okay, well, I, I missed it today. I'll make sure I do it next week. So I think that's a really important thing to do if you're a person that's very um, lived their world through having boundaries all the time or um, structures that keep you safe in your head. So I was very rigid in that. So now there's a little bit more fluidity to, to that. So, um, but in the middle of all of that, I've included practices in my day that can help remind me when I'm slipping. So one of those things was that I brush my teeth with my left hand now, as opposed to my right hand. And the reason for that is that, A, you have to practice really hard to brush your teeth with your opposite hand. <laughs> That's a challenge, let me tell you. But more so, every time I realise I've picked something up with my right hand, it's a reminder of how easy it is to slip back into old practices. So that's why I do it. That's an amazing tip. I love that a lot. I'm tempted actually to have a go at that myself. Because, yes, I mean, you've just beautifully described how our patterns of behavior can, we think they're keeping us safe, um, but often they're not keeping us safe. Uh, and mm. it sounds amazing that you've been able to reassess all of that, change the environment, change the situation, and actually think about what am I capable of and what works best for me? So I, I love the fact that you are putting a cap on your working hours. That sounds like a really beneficial thing and clearly quite a big step for you as well. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And the interesting thing is that when I was a leader in schools, I was very good at looking after my staff. I was always very good about saying, okay, here's, here's your 100, you know, here's your hours. There's the 100% of your 38 hours that you were working in a week. And I would always say to them, you need to keep 20% where you are not doing anything so that there's always a bit of a buffer. So if something's gone longer than it should that week, you've got a little bit of breathing space. But more importantly, I would go around to the classrooms at the end of the day and say to the teachers, it's time to go home. You need to pack up and you need to go home. Or it would 
they would look like they're getting a bit frazzled and I would go and have a conversation with them and say, do you need, you know, a, a, a wellbeing Friday or a wellbeing Monday? So do you need a long weekend? Let's organise that if that's what you need. Do you need to take it tomorrow? When, when do you actually need to take that time? So I was very, very good at looking after them, but I was notoriously bad at looking after myself. So now I've, I've revert, not reversed that where I don't look after staff, but I'm more um, acutely aware of the need of looking after myself first. It's a bit like the oxygen mask. You know, if I haven't got my own oxygen mask on, then there's no way I can really look after anybody else. And I think the, the issue with leaders in organisations is that there's a bit of a mindset that somehow you're going to be valued differently or respected differently if you're the super hard worker that does all of these extra hours like you're a champion. But in actual fact, I think leaders need to, to completely, you know, break that, you know, conception down to you're a leader by showing people how to best look after yourself and show them that it's okay to take the time or to leave a little earlier or to go and do your yoga class or whatever the flexibility within your role can be because that's where leadership sits rather than the, the misconception in our heads around working the extra hours like we're some sort of champion in the world because I, I don't believe in that anymore, not at all. That sounds like such a big shift. That's amazing. It, it's been, yeah, well, <laughs> it was an earthquake, honey. <laughs> so we're in the re rebuild stages. But it's, it, yeah, it's, it's, look, you know, I suppose life is a, about that, that constant reevaluation. And I think that if we get to a point where if we stop reevaluating ourselves and being, and stop being reflective, then, you know, I think we stop living and, and that's, that's not a good thing. And I don't think it matters how old we are. You know, my mum's 86 and she was very much a, a strict Catholic woman and she's, she's softened incredibly. And, you know, here she's at 86 on Facebook and sending message and emojis. So, you know, you're never too old to learn something new. So your work training as a mental health first aider would you be happy to talk about how people can help when somebody they love is struggling? What kind of things they can do to help the conversation along? Yeah, I think I think the biggest thing that, that um, I talk about is around becoming very good at, at observing. Because if we're, we're good at that observing, we can be picking up the signs and symptoms earlier. And if we start to notice that somebody isn't quite themselves, then that's really the time to start having a conversation with somebody and asking them, how, how are they traveling? What's happening for them? And more so from a, a point of view of curiosity, as opposed to going in and saying, I've noticed that you're really different because otherwise the person hearing that message is more likely to feel as though they're being... Um, that it's a, a negative comment. But if you're going in with a very conversational approach and it's a curious approach and asking 
So, so how's how's work traveling at the moment? How, how are things? What are you finding that you're that you're passionate about in regards to work, or what are you finding are the challenges about work? So, leaving the questions really open ended, and and being curious about what's happening for that person, and I think also is that we've got to be very aware that that mental illness is really an effect to a cause and that there is something underlying to that. And more often than not, people get very focused around what the final effect is and they get very caught up in that as opposed to trying to find out, you know, what, what's happened before that because there, there's more to the story. It's a bit like drug and alcohol use. We get very, very focused around telling people to stop drinking and you're drinking too much or you're engaging in too many drugs, that's just an outcome. And we need to pop the outcome to the side and just care about the person and find out, so how are you? You know, are you okay? And being comfortable in the discomfort of the conversation around, are you having suicidal thoughts? Are you thinking about taking your life and using really direct language because if we say are you thinking about hurting yourself well that message could be different for you or could be different for me but if we're really direct about it and sit in the space and be willing to hear the answer from that person and be okay if they say yes I, I do I, I want to end my life then you can be saving their life by just being brave enough to sit with them and hear where their pain is sitting and being able to tell them that you're going to be there with them to keep them safe and that you have faith in the capacity that they can take another breath and that if they can take another breath, then they can take another breath and that I'm going to sit here with you until we've done five breaths because that's five more than you thought you could take five breaths ago. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, it's, it's just being okay about the fact that somebody else isn't okay. Really beautiful advice, actually. I think one of the things that I hear people talk about, that they're scared of making something worse. And one of the mistakes that I often see people do as well is they try and fix it for the person but of course there's not really anything that they can actively do and it seems mm. like people don't realize how important it can be to just listen absolutely well we have enough evidence from the mental health first aid programs and I'm pretty sure that you guys have got mental health first aid in the UK which is based here from Australia is the fact that we know that by having those conversations we're reducing the figures we're not actually increasing the ideation so we know that the conversation works, but we've just got to be okay about stepping into, into those conversations. And more often than not, when I speak with people, there's a lot of words that they put up first, like challenging or difficult. I'm having a challenging conversation. or I'm going to have a difficult conversation. And I, I say to people, can you please park that? Pop those two words to the side, because what our brain hears, our body follows. So if we think it's going to be a challenging conversation, then our body will naturally gear up for it to be a difficult conversation. If we reframe it and say, I'm going to sit and have a human interaction with somebody, I'm just going to be human with them and I'm just going to love them for that moment 
and sit with them and, and really listen to what's happening for them or what they're thinking about in that moment, that is hugely powerful just in, in that alone. And then the other thing is that it's so critically important that people don't get into that idea that they're there to fix it because they're not. Really, our job as a mental health first aider or as a, a friend or as a family member is to remind the person that they've got everything that they need in themselves already. They've just become a little disconnected to it. And what we're trying to do is awaken them again to that resource, that internal resource that they already have and empower them to tap back into that again so that they can feel like they're in control of their own life rather than somebody trying to impose on them what they should be doing and who they should be talking to and which service they should be connecting with, et cetera, that the person themselves has the opportunity to choose. What are they going to choose to do and how are they going to do it? And, and reminding them that they're, they're not broken, they're completely okay they're just a little you know disconnected from from who they are and that they once they find who that is within themselves again that it's amazing that they can move back into a space where they can be at peace with themselves not fixed you know or any sort of label like that but all happy because I think we've got a happy epidemic going on like happiness is something that we should be attaining the reality is happiness is the same as the seasons it comes and it goes and so but I think if we can build a resilience in ourselves so that we can tap into calmness and peace and if we can tap into that then happiness kind of follows anyway naturally so where can people find out more information if they're interested in learning more? Uh, well, we have a website called diggingdeeper.com.au and the whole premise around that is about digging deeper into mental health, trying to understand what the journey is for, for individuals. And um, we want to know as many stories as we can possibly understand because part of our, our company the gap group is about trying to understand where are those gaps why are people falling through those gaps and how can we work together with the government with our community etc so that we can start closing those gaps and create a little bit of a, a safety net for those people who are currently falling through them so yeah that's what we want to do amazing I'll put the link in the description to the podcast as well so that people can go and have a look learn some more as well but thank you so much for your time um well this evening for you it's morning for me <laughs> <laughs> it's been my joy absolute joy anytime thank you for listening to this week's episode make sure you subscribe to this podcast for notifications on future episodes and if you have the time to write a quick review then that would be greatly appreciated to find out more about me and the work that I do, please head to www.anxietytoconfidence.com. That's the number two, anxietytoconfidence.com.